0: It is without a doubt one of the most amazing urban-built waterfronts anywhere, and it is right here in Chicago. In their book, Lakefront, Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago, authors Joseph D. Kearney and Thomas W. Merrill do a deep dive into how this wonderful area along Lake Michigan came about. These guys are no slouches either. Kearney is dean and professor of law at Marquette University, and Merrill is the Charles Evans Hughes professor of law at Columbia University. If you'd like to watch the longer video version of this interview, go to YouTube and search for Chicago History Podcast. If you don't already subscribe, please do so. And now... gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. So give me a little bit of uh, a little history of your time in Chicago, each of you. We'll start with uh, Joseph today.
1: Thank you. Very glad to be here. I am a native of the South Side, and after high school, went away for college and law school, but came back to Practice law in downtown Chicago for a number of years, where I had the great good fortune to run into Tom and latch myself
0: to him before I moved up here to Milwaukee. Now, you mentioned, before we get to Tom, you mentioned you grew up in the south, uh, south side, south suburbs. What, uh, what neighborhood was that?
1: Uh, the far south side of the city, uh, Beverly, about 103rd and Western.
0: Oh. Okay, great. Fantastic. And Mr. Merrill, you?
2: I grew up in Iowa, uh, but I found myself in Chicago when I uh, started law school at the University of Chicago Law School and uh, um, ended up uh, practicing law in Chicago and working, uh, teaching at Northwestern for uh, 22 years uh, after I graduated from law school and finished clerking and so forth. So I lived in Evanston on the north side uh, and um, while in law school, commuted down Lakeshore Drive to the University of Chicago. So that's when I first became interested in the lakefront. Uh, and then when I started teaching at Northwestern Campus, of course, is in, in the city, I continued to drive up and down Lakeshore Drive. So I, that's really the root of my fascination with the Chicago lakefront, I think.
0: Now, I noticed that in the book and in the op-ed piece in the Chicago Tribune, uh, you guys are usually listed as, as Kearney and Merrill. Uh, like uh, Lennon and McCartney, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Leopold and Loeb. Is that um, uh, just based on alphabetical or how did you guys settle on who gets top billing?
1: It's entirely alphabetical if one were to estimate the relative contributions in the project, including its very origins, let's just say that it might not be to
0: my advantage. I like the fact that I slipped in Leopold and Loeb and neither of you blinked. So I think that's that's pretty great. Well,
1: for me growing up on the far south side of Chicago in the 1970s and the like, Hyde Park was as much associated with the recollection of that in people's minds as anything else. It was only when I came upon people such as Tom that I learned more.
0: So without the notes and indexes, uh, your book, Lakefront Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago comes in at over 300 pages, uh, not a small endeavor. Now I know a little bit about uh, Thomas's uh, interest in the lakefront. Uh, Joseph, how did you get involved in this project? How did he, how did this all come about?
1: So I invited myself into the project. It's really not too much to say. I had been an associate at Sidley and Austin in Chicago, and Tom was of counsel there, already a well-established professor with a chair at Northwestern. And so when I went into academe myself at Marquette, I persuaded him to write an article with me for sort of my first foray into the world of academic publishing. And in the fall of 97, I was in his office at Northwestern having taken the train down from Milwaukee asked him whether he had ever considered writing a book. He proceeded to tell me about this book that he had sort of been envisioning for the previous 23 years since taking Professor Ellison Dunham's property class as a first year law student at the University of Chicago. And the afternoon wasn't over before I had invited myself in and confirmed that we would maintain what we were projecting for the article, which is to say alphabetical order in any credits.
0: As for the book itself, it is, it is very involved. It obviously has a legal bent, as both of you are, are very legal-minded. I wanted to talk a, a little bit. So part of that is also Streeterville, which for uh, people listening who may not know, Streeterville is a neighborhood in Chicago, which, well, it used to not always look like big buildings and fancy stuff, um, it was named for George Wellington Streeter, um, who you describe, I actually wrote this down because I loved it so much, as the quintessential scoundrel, profane, pugilistic, a braggart, and contemptuous of all authority, which I love. So uh, tell us a little bit about Streeterville, and and, uh, either one of you can take it.
1: Well, this being north of the river, and Tom having taught in the area for more than 20 years, I certainly defer to him.
2: Okay, well, uh, the area north of the river is kind of unusual in that... um, uh it, it, uh it was developed at, it initially by what we call natural accretion. The uh, current in the lake uh, sort of moves in a counterclockwise direction. So when the Chicago River was straightened out with these piers, the sand started piling up uh, north of the ri- river uh, along these piers. And uh, uh, it wasn't too long before a fairly substantial amount of land was there. And, and various people started uh, eyeing this as... Uh, potentially extremely valuable real estate because of its proximity to the downtown area and so forth. And um, our book uh, describes um, uh, a sort of fourfold uh, competition to try to gain uh, control of this land. Uh, uh, one of the competitors was this guy, George Wellington Streeter, who was basically a squatter. He, uh, he had various tales that he told about himself, including that he had discovered this new land by uh, Having a boat that he had commandeered uh, uh, grounding on the land and he uh, then declared that it was a district uh, that that uh, was independent of Illinois and the United States or both uh, and that he was uh, declared himself the leader of this district and then he had a, a band of followers who eventually congregated around him and they essentially squatted on this area for uh, uh, multiple decades uh, uh, and and uh, uh, would try to repel any efforts to oust them uh, with a show of force. Uh, Streeter had various wives and, and uh, loyal followers. And when uh, some of the landowners who thought they had a better title to this area tried to oust him, they would frequently be greeted by pots of boiling water or gunshots and so forth. And so it, was, it became quite a wild west scene um, uh, for uh, quite a number of years. It was really only after Streeter died Uh, that uh, the wealthy landowners uh, finally succeeded in consolidating their grip on this area uh, using a scheme uh, uh, in which the uh, Lincoln Park District uh, commissioners were the sort of uh, principal agency. Uh, uh, But there were other schemes as well. The Potawatomi Indians claimed the land and uh, some uh, other people that had acquired some uh, uh, script from the uh, federal land office uh, from a deceased war veteran uh, claimed the land. Um, So it was kind of a four way fight uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, And Streeterville as a consequence was sort of a a bare vacant kind of wasteland for a long period of time because of the great uncertainty that all this contestation created. And it uh, took quite a long time to get all this uh, finally resolved and and, uh, and get development started. Uh, of course, today it's one of the most uh, fantastically uh, developed areas in all of Chicago, with high rises uh, all surrounding you on all sides. But uh, initially, Streeterville was kind of ground zero for um, this four-way fight uh, over who, in fact, was going to claim the final prize of this of this land.
0: You talk a lot about Grant Park, which obviously uh, a pretty big part of uh, the lakefront. Uh, Originally, a lot of rails, um, a lot of parking, which has all kind of gone underground, and now it's this big open space. Another great line in your book, uh, like most of the rest of the United States, Grant Park was created by the railroad, but came to be dominated by the automobile. So who wants to talk a little bit about Grant Park?
1: The land that is now Grant Park was originally almost entirely underwater the waters of Lake Michigan between what we know as Randolph and whether you wanna call 12th Street and Roosevelt Road lapped up against Michigan Avenue during much of the mid 19th century. And in much of that area, this of course was a great threat to the folks who had built some rather impressive structures often called Terrace Row along the west side of Michigan Avenue, south of Monroe Street, it was not really permitted to build anything or even north of Monroe for that matter, simply because of the geography and the structures were in danger of being washed away. And the deal was that the Illinois Central Railroad would be permitted to enter Chicago coming in via the then southern boundary at 22nd street on land, but very quickly then as the lake receded to the west as one went north, it would be built over water, certainly between 12th street and Randolph, and the city would get a breakwater out of the deal, which would stop the erosion to the extent that it was being experienced now this was not the most popular deal with some of the landowners to the west notwithstanding the advantage that it got them because a railroad between you and most of the Lakeview can be noisy and unsightly and uh, dirty and so there began this it's not too much to say decades-long struggle that involved the railroad and landowners to the west and to an extent this got bound up in what we call in the book because it's what the law knows as the public dedication doctrine having to do with various restrictions that appeared on various maps that protected the land that was eventually filled in between Michigan Avenue and the breakwater. And it became uh, a struggle that really uh, lasted well into the 20th century as to whether this land would get developed with interesting personalities such as Montgomery Ward along the way.
2: Well, it's uh, it's uh, just to continue this the story. I mean, uh, much of our book really uh, is about the. Uh, Struggles on the lakefront, uh, conflicts on the lakefront, which uh, we think were largely between rival factions of the Chicago elite. It was not uh, entirely the case that it was, you know, uh, a fight amongst the elites, but it was largely a fight amongst the, the elites. And Grant Park is a perfect illustration of that because uh, once the area started being filled in uh, in the late 19th century, Uh, A great number of persons who are part of the Chicago elite, uh, uh, you know, Marshall Field and so forth uh, and the authors of the Plan of Chicago, uh, Burnham and Bennett, uh, wanted to use Grant Park as a site for a whole series of monumental buildings, uh, you know, uh, the Field Museum, a library, perhaps a city hall and so forth. The uh, owners on Michigan Avenue wanted to keep the park open so that they could preserve their views of the lake and live in peace and quiet. And so they have this a longstanding fight using this public dedication doctrine, which, interestingly enough, uh, Montgomery Ward, uh, who funded much of this litigation, uh, more or less consistently won these lawsuits. And in so doing, he kept Grant Park free of any buildings, uh, which of course today uh, we're quite grateful for because uh, it becomes this large open space right in the middle of the city, which is unusual. Um, But it was nip and tuck for a while, and and the uh, large segment of the Chicago League, maybe most of the Chicago League, and all the big papers, uh, the Chicago Tribune and so forth, were very much in favor of using this area as kind of a a place for the collection of monumental buildings. The upshot of uh, Ward's victories were that uh, the museums and so forth had to all be located outside of the Grant Park perimeter. So that's why we have this museum campus in Chicago, uh, uh, south of 12th Street or Roosevelt Road uh, with the Adler Planetarium and the Aquarium and the Field Museum and so forth, all clustered uh, down at that part of the city, which is quite a a hefty walk from the center of the loop. uh, maybe if uh, Marshall Field and his allies had prevailed, uh, uh, tourists would find it less tiresome to walk from uh, the Art Institute, say, uh, to um, the Field Museum. But um, uh, the reason for that is uh, is the tenacity of Mr. Ward in fending off these plans for buildings in, in what is now Grant Park.
0: You guys talk about in the 1920s, the South Park Commission decided to restore the Fine Arts Building which was uh, one of the remaining buildings, I think the only remaining building from the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. It was expensive. There was a taxpayer challenge. And in 1926, the Illinois Supreme Court rejected the claim, stating park purposes are not confined to a tract of land with trees, grass and seats, but could also include museums, art galleries, botanical and zoological uh, gardens and many other purposes for the public benefit. Uh, That building, of course, now is known as the Museum of Science and Industry. I will
1: say that the very story of what we know as the Museum of Science and Industries being down toward Jackson Park is itself fascinating and recounted in the book in a way and in a detail that had not previously been unearthed. The story of the Columbian Exposition being not on the downtown lakefront, but rather to the south, had a lot to do with the struggles between the railroad and the Michigan Avenue elite.
2: Yeah, so to, to clarify things a little bit here, the um, the Grand Park area is protected by this dedication doctrine, which prohibits the building of uh, any structures in the park, but the other areas of the lakefront, north and south, um, uh, are only protected by this public trust doctrine, which is, uh, as as you pointed out, the Supreme Court, Illinois Supreme Court decision in the uh, case involving the uh, Museum of Science and Industry, uh, uh, the courts had no problem with the idea of putting a museum on public trust land, so um, the public trust doctrine is not as uh, uh, hostile to building structures on on land as the public dedication doctrine is. The issue in the OPC was interesting because uh, a lot of the case turned on whether the Obama Presidential Center was really going to be built on public trust land or not. Uh, so eventually um, the trial judge in that case uh, came up with this three-part distinction, uh, which I think has some merit, which was that uh, you have to distinguish between filling land which is under navigable waters, like you know, filling a part of Lake Michigan the way the South Works did or, or something like that. That's one category. A second category would be changing the use of some land that was previously filled, which would be the Lucas Museum was changing the use of the land from an asphalt parking lot to this funny looking museum. And then there's land that's never been underwater at all. And so uh, the big dispute in the Obama Presidential Center case was whether the land was ever under the water at all. And the judge found, I think quite correctly, that the land in question, which is on the west side of Jackson Park, was actually never submerged. And so the public trust doctrine has its weakest application to never submerged land. Uh, and uh, consequently, the public trust challenge to the Obama Presidential Center didn't didn't succeed. Um, uh, but that that's a bit of potential clarification. Unfortunately, it's just a one federal judge's view, and so it hasn't really been endorsed by the Illinois Supreme Court. But one big question about the public trust doctrine is, you know, what kind of land or submerged land does it applied to? And then there are other questions about what sort of interests uh, are prohibited by it, or prohib- or permitted by it, and so forth. But Uh, The OPC looks like it's on track to uh, go forward at this point. I think the litigation uh, may carry forward in some nominal sense, but is unlikely to succeed any further.
0: Mm. In researching this book, uh, what was the most surprising thing for each of you to learn? I'll uh, let you decide who goes first. I think it for me to have been
1: the saga to which I previously alluded, whereby there had been a substantial possibility that the Columbian Exposition of 1893 would, in fact, have been on the lakefront just east of downtown, what we now know as Grand Park. The planners got to a point of even projecting and releasing to the public renderings of the five buildings that would have been on the east side of Michigan Avenue between Monroe Street or Madison Street south to Park Row, as it was called. And it was primarily the intractability of the dispute between non-fair entities, which is to say the railroad to the east, as it were, and the Michigan Avenue owners to the west that finally prompted the planners who were operating on a tight timetable to throw up their hands and say, we'll go to Jackson Park, which, of course, posed all sorts of logistical difficulties because the transportation was not set. So that was a little known aspect of what is otherwise a much well chronicled part of American history, which is to say the Columbian Exposition.
2: My initial fascination with the lakefront was largely driven by my feeling that it was a a giant puzzle. I couldn't figure out uh, exactly how all these controversies had been resolved the way they were. Um, I think one uh, sort of revelation for me, uh, rather early in the project, was uh, the dawning understanding that the, uh, the understanding of who owns the bed of Lake Michigan changed by 180 degrees starting in the 1860s and then uh, moving on toward the 1890s. And the, the original understanding was that anybody who was a riparian owner who loan, owned land along the uh, shore of the, of the lake owned the bed of the lake. And then gradually the understanding uh, changed to the idea that the state of Illinois owned the bed of the lake. And so that changed understanding really unlocked a lot of the uh, uh, mystery about what happened because you could sort of see people made certain plans based on the understanding that the riparians owned the bed of the lake. And then that was upset uh, once the understanding changed and it turned out that the state of Illinois owned the bed of the lake. And people started trying to finagle grants from the state of Illinois in order to do various things along the lakefront, as opposed to just doing it uh, on their own initiative. Also, I think the, uh, I had no understanding of how Lakeshore Drive was constructed north and south. And we uncovered uh, this, tradition, I guess you'd say, or a uh, legal device called boundary agreements, which was used uh, to do that. The, uh, the idea is quite simple that the, uh, in, uh, the, the, the park districts couldn't really afford to buy out the riparian rights of all the landowners that had land along the shore of the lake. Uh, so what they did was they entered into a contract with the riparian owners in which the boundary would be uh, located about 100 feet into the lake and then uh, an agreement would be that agreement would be submitted to a court approved by the court and once the court approved it the riparian owners could then fill in their extra 100 feet which would be their compensation for giving up their riparian rights to the park districts so this explains how the park districts were able to build the lakeshore drive north and south without incurring substantial expense without having to condemn using eminent domain powers the riparian owners rights and so forth uh and that was quite a surprise to learn about that and and it also explains as we detail in uh some of our uh, one of our chapters why the Lakeshore drive stops at hollywood in the north why it never really got much beyond jackson park in the south uh, because the ability to uh, negotiate these boundary agreements kind of uh, uh ran out once uh, other other development uh, prospects for riparian owners became uh too uh too promising relative to the value of extra land. So that was, that was to me, a, a complete revelation.
0: Uh, what do you think Daniel Burnham, of course, one of the authors of the 1909 plan of Chicago, um, would think uh, if he saw the lakefront today?
2: No, I think he would have been uh, largely quite pleased. I mean, I think uh, his plan was not carried out you know, completely. Obviously, uh, great plans like that almost never are. Uh, but his plan featured um, a very large park in the center of the city uh, uh, with, you know, sort of yacht clubs centered along the lakefront with uh, large docks on both sides, uh, of which Navy Pier is one uh, the only existing uh, version of this, uh, and then uh, strips of parkland up and down uh, with, you know, little little boat harbors and so forth nestled in the parklands, uh, so looking at Chicago from the east in the lake it, it looks not terribly different from what Burnham I think envisioned um, some of the rest of his plan of course never really got completely realized but I, I think uh, you know he would largely be I think quite gratified even though I don't think his plan was sort of like some kind of blueprint that was followed by everybody uh, you know to carry out the plan uh, but you know uh, it, it, the way things unfolded uh, the, the lakefront in Chicago, Looks somewhat like what Burnham, I think, uh, what yeah, what he what he envisioned.
0: The book is called Lakefront Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago. My guests today, and watch this, Thomas Merrill and Joseph Kearney. See, I switch you two around just to give one of you uh, a chance to be up front, uh, gentlemen. This has been wildly informative. I feel like I will need to read this book at least three or four more times to even understand a tenth of what you guys wrote. Uh, but thank you for writing it. I feel like it's going to be an invaluable reference uh, for quite some time. Great. Thank Thanks you so That's much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode about the book Lakefront Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago. Thanks to my guests, authors Thomas Merrill and Joseph Kearney and their publisher, Cornell University Press. There are links in the show's notes if you'd like to purchase a copy of this book. Any purchase made through those links helps offset the show's production costs without any additional cost to you. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and anything else I might have from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the week check it out and give us a follow please thanks as always to john k schneider for creating the chicago history podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages you can be found at angel eyes art jks on instagram or via email at angel eyes art jks at gmail.com if you would please take a moment and like subscribe and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.